This is the Fuente Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to uh, my show. Just sit on down and get yourself comfortable. Get a, uh, a hot chocolate for the wee ones, uh, a coffee for the mediums, and maybe a, a little scotch for the, the big boys. And get ready to listen to some good uh, exegesis on the Bible. Really hold on to something because you're going to have your mind blown. Okay, today I'm going to tell you big picture what I'm going to argue. And then I'll go into the details. Okay, so we'll, I'll see. This is what I'm going to be painting. And then we'll go with the brush and start getting the little bits here and there. I'm going to tell you guys that God got fed up with humanity. And handed all of us over to serve the divine counsel instead of himself. You're like, what? Just hold on. Uh, I'm going to show you with textual evidence that this is what happened at the Tower of Babel incident. Okay, and then after that, God will pull out this one man to start a race through whom he's going to then reintroduce himself to the world. Okay. Yahweh is going to disinherit the nations with a promise that he'll one day inherit them again and reverse the exile of Babel. Okay, y'all with me? All right, let's dive in. I can probably break from the formula and not read the entire section. Uh, I'll read a portion so you get the idea, and I'll read maybe about Nimrod, but just know it's the table of nations, which is why scholars call it the table of nations. Okay, give me a minute to open up to this. Y'all having a good day today? Have y'all been getting along with y'all's families even though y'all are trapped in the house together? It's actually been really good for us. I've spent a lot of time kissing on my fat cheek daughter. I've enjoyed it a lot. Okay, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medei, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiris. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Jevan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittites and Rodanites. And it says, from these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. This might be a reference to what's called the Sea People. And the um, they're written about in Egyptian and Canaanite uh, manuscripts that these sea people came and destroyed a bunch of civilizations in the 1200s. I think scholars believe they were uh, from a, one of the Greek islands, um, like maybe Crete or something. I think P- Philistines were from there too. I do not know if Philistines and sea peoples were the same people. I will look into that later. For now, I just need to get, I want to focus first on this theme of exile after the Tower of Babel, okay? The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Rama, and Sapteca. And it basically goes on and on like this. What's the important thing here? The important thing to note is that 70 nations are listed in all. Okay, 70. That's going to be a big deal, the fact that there's 70 nations. It's going to line us up with some uh, Mesopotamian parallels with 70. Okay, the other, only other thing I want to talk about is Cush was a, the father of Nimrod. 
who was a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, uh, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Okay, so there's this unique universalist sort of idea. It's a theme in Genesis that you don't see in any analogies in literature in the in the Near East. I want to read from Alter describing this situation, talking about how strange this is to have in ancient Mesopotamian literature. In keeping, this is him, in keeping with the universalist perspective of Genesis, the table of nations is a serious attempt, unprecedented in the ancient Near East, to sketch a panorama of all known human cultures, from Greece and Crete in the West, through Asia Minor and Iran, down through Mesopotamia and the Arabian Peninsula to Northwest Africa. Nobody else was trying to describe all these nations in this way. This chapter has been a happy hunting ground for scholars armed with the tools of archaeology, and in fact, an impressive proportion of these names have analogies or have analogs in, in inscriptions and in tablets in other ancient Near Eastern cultures. The table mingles geographic, ethnic, and linguistic criteria for defining nations, and the list intersperses place names and gentilic designations. The latter appearing first in plural forms and beginning with verse 16 in singular forms. Some analysts have argued for a splicing together of two different lists of nations. One so basically you have this very universalist try to get the entire world involved in this piece of literature view. Along with that you have potentially two manuscripts stuck together because there's singulars in one part and plurals in another. Um, next we have chapter 11. Chapter 11 is going to be dealing with the Tower of Babel. Okay, And all the earth was one language, one set of words. And it happened as they journeyed from the east that they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us bake bricks and burn them hard. And the bricks served them as stone, and bitumen served them as mortar. And they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. So this sounds like a Babylonian ziggurat. We'll talk about that later. That we may make us a name. That's going to be important too. Lest we be scattered over all the earth. Remember, in Genesis, he said, uh, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is violating that command to fill the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the human creatures had built. And the Lord said, As one people with one language for all, if this is what they have begun to do, now nothing they plot to do will elude them. Come, let us go down and baffle their language there so that they will not understand each other's language. And the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it is called Babel, for there the Lord made the language of all the earth Babel. From there, the Lord scattered them over all the earth. So they end up doing what it was that God had wanted them to do. Um, and then also that Hebrew word Babel is just like in English. It can mean like gibberish. Okay. Now, so it says that they, they try to mix divinity and humanity by building this tower. And then God spreads them over all the earth. And in ancient Jewish thought, this was very, very connected with um, him disinheriting the nations. So before Adam and Noah, 
it, these people they were they were representative of all of humanity and it was god's original intention that humanity be one but after rejecting him he sends them into exile from himself and each other okay um i'm going to read from deuteronomy 32 and deuteronomy 32 makes a reference to this story and has some very interesting language that's very controversial okay I'm going to read from 32, verse 8. When Elion, that means God Most High, gave estates to nations, he split up the sons of man. That just means humans. He set out the boundaries of peoples by the number of the sundry gods. Okay, what? Yes, the Lord's portion, his people, Jacob, the parcel, his estate. He found him in the wilderness in the waste of the howling desert. He encircled him gave mind to him, watched him like the apple of his eye. So we have um, God dividing up the estates of the nations by the number of the sundry gods. That was Alter's translation. I'm going to read now from what's commonly in your Bibles, okay? When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Okay, and Mike Kaiser argues that this is sons of God here. Alter had sundry gods. Um, who's right? Okay, is it supposed to be sons of Israel? Well, it is according to a text called the Masoretic Text, and I'll tell you about it. The Masoretic Text is a text that was used by some Jews uh, in medieval times from the 7th to 10th centuries. The oldest copy we have is from the 9th century. And before the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, these were the oldest manuscripts we had of the Tanakh. And if you compare that to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls are about a thousand years older. Okay, they're like from, some of them are as old as 300 BC. That being said, though, that doesn't mean that the Dead Sea Scrolls are always superior of a copy to the Masoretic text. I mean, probably, because they're just so much older, but. You know, you, you want to compare both of those also to the Septuagint. And so we have these three different strands of text. You compare them all and see who agrees with who and where. So the line, Sons of Israel, is a bad translation in my opinion. Um, people know that the, a better translation for this is Sons of God now. And that's mostly because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, the ESV and the NRSV have changed it to Sons of God, and other translations now have a note there. It, it's, it seems to indicate a there's a stronger older tradition of Sons of God, or Messengers of God. Combine this with the fact that this is going to, whenever you realize this says the Sons of God, there's going to be a whole bunch of explanatory power. So when you look at the older manuscripts, and you look at the explanatory power, it's pretty persuasive what's going to what I'm arguing, okay? Because there's questions like this. Why would God divide up the nations according to the 70 sons of Israel if Israel didn't even exist as a country yet? Okay, we're talking about the Tower of Babel. Abraham hasn't even been picked out of Ur yet. Okay, so how could it be that they're divided up by the, the sons of Israel if there is no Israel? Is there a reason to believe in 70 sons of God? Yes, as we'll see in parallel Ugaritic literature. If there is an apportionment based on the sons of God, 
and there's 70 sons of God that would fit older manuscripts better and it would potentially make more sense and it would fit within a cultural context. Ugarit, to explain, is an ancient city that was excavated in modern Syria, north of Israel. It has a language that's closest to Israel out of any language. Well, it's, it's, got, its language is closest to ancient Hebrew out of any language that's ever been found. Um, any of the other Semitic languages that we have data for. Um, this city was very close geographically, culturally, and linguistically. There's a lot of cognates between the languages. In the writings of Ugarit, El Elyon means God Most High. And El Elyon was said to have fathered 70 sons, Ben El and Ugaritic. Okay, in Deuteronomy 32.8, he's described as El Elyon. And he's named there, and, he's, and he splits up the nations into 70 according to the sons of the Hebrew is Ben El. That looks a lot like Ben Il from Ugarit. Okay. Ben El. This linguistic evidence is often argued against by Christians who want to follow the Mesorites because they're scared of the Bible looking like it endorses polytheism or they're scared of going away from the translation they've always used in their traditions. But if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, we need to go with the oldest, most reliable text, not necessarily what our church traditions say. As far as polytheism, you don't have to be scared of polytheism because in ancient Jewish thought, it wasn't like all these gods were equal, like some kind of Roman polytheistic uh, group. It was more, there's this one God who's uncreated, who created everything. And then there's, in English, a safer way to say it would be powerful spirit beings. Okay? It's just, um, in Hebrew, the word Elohim can mean... God with a capital G, but it can also mean powerful spirit beings that are created. They're not uncreated. Okay, and they're like um, absolute, absolutely pathetic in comparison with the power of God. And you can see God's power over this idea of polytheistic gods with a lowercase g. Like in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the way they're cowering in fear from a seven-day flood... And Yahweh doesn't cower with a 40-day flood. Okay. Um, if you want to link the argument for this reading of Sons of God here, you can see the link in the description. It goes to an article by Mike Heiser. Um, he mentions some pretty persuasive stuff besides what I've already said. Like uh, he looks at Deuteronomy 32:43 and compares the Masoretic text to 4Q Deuteronomy 9 of the, um, of the Septuagint. The parallelism of the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls is missing from the Masoretic text, so it looks like it's been edited out. So any student of Hebrew knows that whenever someone's writing poetry in Hebrew, they'll write a line and then write under it, they'll write another line that's like saying the same thing but in different words. And it's this parallelism. Okay, so where's the divine counsel in the Bible? Well, they pop up everywhere. They're often called the hosts of heaven... They appear in the Psalms frequently. You can see explicit mention of them in 1 Kings 22.19, as well as Psalm 82. So why does any of this matter? Why does it matter that there's a divine council? Why does it matter that God's splitting up all the nations to these 70 gods? Um, God apportioned the sons of El to these nations after the Tower of Babel incident. 
The humans have sinned in Genesis 3 through Adam and Eve. The sons of God have sinned through their sexual transgression in Genesis 6. Okay, so they both sinned. God gives humanity one last chance with a new start, but they blow it. They blow it. Um, through their through Noah. Remember Noah, he gets drunk, and then and then his son comes in, and he screws his mom, and uh, they just mess it up. Humans are trying to make a fake Eden with the Tower of Babel. It's like this fake holy mountain. Adam and Eve fail, remember, at the beginning. And so if you look at all these failures and who's doing these failures, you can kind of start to see a chiasm. Remember, chiasms are those literary tools that, that ancient Jews loved, where it's patterns like one, two, three, two, one. And if you split it in the middle, you see a uh, like a, they love parallelism. You see like a, a symmetry on both sides of the chiasm. So Adam and Eve, they, they kind of represent all of humanity. Adam, after all, means human, and Eve means life. So you have human life, and they fail. Okay, so all humanity fails. They're, they're all the humans that exist at that time, and they fail. And then sin crouches and wins out on a family member with Cain. Okay, so within a family. Then sin crouches and wins out at, in the family level with Ham, and then sin wins out through the corporate act of all humans in the Tower of Babel. See how it's like everybody messes up, family messes up, family messes up, everybody messes up. And you could even put a, uh, the divine council messing up in the middle of that, if you look at it. So you could even say Adam and Eve mess up as all of humanity. Then Cain messes up as part of a family. Then the divine council screws up in the middle. Then uh, Ham and Noah mess up as a family. And then all humans mess up with the Tower of Babel. And then if you look in the 1 and 3 and, uh, uh, and 5 of that, so if you look at Adam and Eve, the sons of God, and the Tower of Babel, all three of those incidents are humanity and divinity trying to mix in the wrong way. So you have like this chiastic structure with like a, another chiastic structure going on. Um, where it's like, Human becoming divine, divine trying to be human, and then human trying to be divine. Okay. The first sin results in exile from the garden, like that first sin of Adam and Eve. They're kicked out. That's the punishment. And see, I want to look at these punishments for a second. They're kicked out of the garden. There's a cherubim holding a sword, guarding them out, keeping them from the tree of life. And Gilgamesh, he's de Gilgamesh is de deprived of the plant that gives eternal life, ad hoc by a random serpent. Okay, but Adam and Eve are deprived from the tree of life because of morality. They make a bad moral decision. So just comparing Gilgamesh and Adam and Eve there. The second event, Cain kills Abel, results in exile from other humans. Remember, Cain is exiled from all the other humans, and he's like, oh no, what if somebody kills me? So you have Adam and Eve exiled, you have Cain exiled, Look at these punishments. Keep them in mind as you navigate the biblical narrative. The sons of God are punished with the flood. So it's like a, a watery doom of a death. They're cut off from life. Okay? Think like Adam and Eve cut off from the tree of life. And they're uh, hit with decreation. The flood, the chaotic water. Now the whole humanity now, after the flood, can't be punished with another flood. So how's God going to punish... The, this tower. 
of Babel. He promised he wouldn't use more destruction, so instead God punishes them all by exiling them from himself and each other. Uh, just like he exiled Adam and Eve from himself, and he exiled Cain from each other, like he exiled one human from the other humans, like they exiled Adam and Eve and the exile of Cain, the exile, and, and compare also to the exile to come for Israel and Judah under Assyria and Babylon. God exiles humanity from himself because they keep rejecting him, and he's promised not to destroy them. He tells the sons of God and the humans, basically, hey, you guys love each other so much, you keep worshiping each other instead of me. You know what? Here, have each other. I'm out. And he disinherits the nations. So think of it like a spouse who keeps walking in and seeing uh, his wife cheating on him, and eventually he's just like, you know what? You two go off together, because I'm done. I'm done with this relationship, okay? And we can we could phrase it as God exiling them, but really it's more like they've been rejecting God, and he's just saying, you know what, fine. If you really don't want me that bad, I'm out. And he kind of packs his bags and leaves, but he still wants to try, as we'll see, um, with Abraham. So... I mean, just like with me, growing up in the church, I was always wondering, why is it that God's so focused on the Jews? You know, why is he only interested in them? Why wasn't it like the Scots or the Irish, you know? Why was it the Jews? It's not that he's not interested in the whole of humanity, theologically speaking. It's that humanity has rejected him over and over. They did it corporately. They did it as a family unit. Um, and, it, and it shows it like in a chiastic way where there's like a completeness to it of doing it all together and doing it as a family. Uh, it's a pattern that continues on and on. And it's this fall narrative, like just the same way that Cain saw and took the life of Abel and Adam and Eve saw the fruit and took it and Noah saw the, the grapes of the vine and took it. Ham saw his mother and took it. Okay, the, the sinful disposition of humanity is continuing on from generation to generation. And if you're reading the biblical narrative, you're going, oh my gosh, if we could just get that snake slayer that was predicted in Genesis 3. And we thought it was going to be Noah. He was born on Tishri 1. His name means rest, like the Sabbath, like the coming kingdom of God. But no rest came. Um, and you think he's going to do the new creation, but the sin just continues on even within his own children. Um... So the sin continues on and on. The sons of God rejected God's authority as well. And uh, the humans tried to be like God in the garden. Adam means human. Eve means life. Human life was trying to be like God. The sons of God tried to be like man, having sex with the humans as though they were human. Once again, the good desire of combining divine and human, this Edenic ideal, is corrupted and replaced by a fraud. Then we see the Tower of Babel. The humans try and be like the gods again. They build this tower, this ziggurat, the Tower of Babylon, attempting to combine humanity and divinity. The purpose of ziggurats in ancient Mesopotamia, by the way, they, yeah, they look like Egyptian pyramids, but that's, that's where the similarity ends. A pyramid was a tomb. A ziggurat was thought of like a holy mountain where divinity and humanity would mix. So a pyramid and a ziggurat had very different purposes. They're trying to reach a state of divinity. Um, I'm going to read uh, 
Alters Commentary on Deuteronomy uh, 32. Okay, he says, uh, The number of the sundry gods, that's his translation. The Masoretic text here, Lemispar Bene Yisrael, by the number of the sons of Israel, it's hard to make much sense of that reading. Though traditional exegetes tried to do that by noting that Israel and Jacob had 70 male descendants when they went down to Egypt, and there are at least proverbially 70 nations. This translation adopts the reading of the text found at Qumran. He's talking about his own translation. He follows Qumran, which seems close to the Hebrew text used by the Septuagint translator. So you have the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls both agreeing that it's sons of God. This phrase, which appears to reflect a very early stage in the evolution of biblical monotheism, caused later transmitters of the text theological discomfort. Okay. These divine beings or lesser deities, B'nai Elim or B'nai Elohim, are nevertheless subordinate to the supreme God. The song, the song of Moses assumes that God, in allotting portions of the earth to various peoples, also allowed each people its own lesser deity. Compare Moses' remarks about the astral deities in Deuteronomy 4.19. I'm going to flip over to Deuteronomy 4.19, and that will be the end of this episode once I get over there. You guys with me so far? You doing good? Let me get to Deuteronomy 4.19. Oop. Okay, we have it. Almost. What's your favorite type of lasagna? Be thinking about that, 4.19. Okay. Okay, I'm going to go to 15. And you shall be, this is Moses talking to the people, and you shall be very watchful of yourselves, for you saw no image on the day the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, lest you act ruinously and make you a sculpted image of any likeness, the form of male or female, the form of any beast that is on the earth, or the form of any winged bird that flies in the heavens the form of anything that crawls on the ground, the form of any fish that is in the waters of the sea, lest you, raise, listen, lest you raise your eyes to the heavens and see the sun and moon and stars, the divine council, if you're thinking like an ancient, all the array of heavens, and you will be led astray and bow down to them and worship them. For the Lord your God allotted to all the peoples under the heavens, allotted them to all the peoples under the heavens, but you did the Lord take uh, brought you from the iron's forge from Egypt to become for him a people. So he's saying, those guys are for all the other nations. You guys worship me. Okay, let's read his commentary. Once again, the language harks back to the first account of creation, which concludes with the completion of the earth and the heavens and all their array. In a historical period rife with religious syncretism and cultural assimilation, the writer stresses the dangerous enchantment of the beauty of the natural world, which could easily lead people to deify and worship the various manifestations of that beauty. And this makes me think back to Job. Whenever Job, he's talking about fear of worshiping the stars, and he seems to talk about it as though it's almost a knee-jerk reaction when you see them. Okay, um, continue with uh, Alter's commentary. Um, this notion, which will... Be picked up again in the Song of Moses. We just came from there. That's chapter 32, Deuteronomy. Is a curious one by the lights of later monotheism. To Israel, the worship of the one overmastering mastering God was assigned, whereas the other nations were entrusted to the supervision of lesser celestial beings, Bene Ha Elohim, the sons of God, and came to worship these intermediary beings as though they were autonomous deities. 
Polytheism in this view is a reflection of the face that the sundry nations, unlike Israel, have not been chosen by the one God to serve him. Yeah, they were rejected after Babel. And remember, with Babel, too, everybody started speaking different languages. So, my quiz for all of you who are listening is, can you think of a part in the New Testament that could potentially hint at the reversal of Babel? Is there a part in the New Testament where it seems like God is re-inheriting the nations? Is there a part in the New Testament that has something to do with languages? Languages and, and people kind of uniting and becoming one. I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with Pentecost.